Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling. Take one. Is it going to be alright? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I am Eric. On this basically spooky episode, we'll be the podcast that hands out full-size candy bars. We've got an enlivening interview with Amy Badincini about lowriders and punk rock. We'll turn to Satan to tell you all about the 1800s craze of Diableries. We've also got a ghoulish answering machine question, as well as zine reviews and a bit of other glossolalia. Sacrifice is going on tonight, so it's time for another episode of All Through a Lens. But first, Vanya. Yes? How the hell have you been? Oh my gosh, I've been really good. I'm working on uh, the Halloween playlist. I've been maybe being a little too serious about it because I want it to be good. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's hard to do with a Halloween playlist. It is. That's the problem. It's it's really hard to do a Halloween playlist without it being too like Halloween cheese. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't want it to be Halloween cheese. No, no. I was going to ask you. So when you went trick or treating as a kid, okay. If you did, I don't I, know. Maybe of course you did. I did. Did your parents? Okay, I don't know. From Pennsylvania, maybe you guys like took your buggies or something. I don't know. You can still go trick or treating in buggies. Okay. Well, what was the candy that you hated or ha- like tried to trade out? I I mean, I don't know that there was a candy I hated. Anything with coconut, like Almond Joy, but oh, nobody God, ever yeah. gave those. Nobody no, that wasn't like a Halloween candy. Oh no, we definitely I definitely got that. The Milky Way or like Almond Joy. Ugh, I, both I was of those. a big fan of Milky Way. Loved Milky Way. Loved Three Musketeers. Except I had really sensitive teeth so that when I would eat like a Three Musketeers bar, my entire like all of my teeth would hurt at once. Kind of worth it because they were really tasty. Oh my gosh. I don't know if there was any candy that I got that I would just like stay away from. Or how about like a saltwater taffy? Saltwater taffy is not a Halloween candy. Saltwater taffy is a summer candy. When you go down the shore, you get your box or your bucket or your bag of saltwater taffy. And if you still have some left over for Halloween, you're doing something <laughs> very wrong with your life. It's so gross. What was the weirdest thing that you got? We'd get like weird candy that you just wouldn't buy normally, like bottle caps. Hmm. You have them, they're like bottle cap shaped sweet tarts, essentially. Yeah, but it's still edible. I got pennies once. Oh, uh, yeah, that's not candy though. People would give you pennies? Yeah, pennies. Yeah. I don't know. They were just like, just give them pennies. <laughs> I don't know. That's just, that's just weird. Right? You know, you'd have like some people giving out apples and things like that. And then- uh, Walnuts too. Oh, that'd be cool. I loved walnuts as a kid. <laughs> A lot of people like walnuts. Like, walnut, I think it's either you love them or you hate them. No, it's not true. I will eat like a bowl of walnuts if I can crack them open myself. But if the walnuts are in things, especially baked goods, seriously, go fuck yourself for putting walnuts in baked goods. It's delicious. What are you talking about? It's horrible, especially sneaky walnuts. Like there's this place in Seattle that does these amazing looking vegan chocolate chip cookies. And mm. every single time I forget that there's walnuts in them. Delicious. No, horrible. Well, that's wonderful. Well, okay, I I just I guess I was just curious. I don't know. I 
I figured you were going to tell me that you like really like circus peanuts or something no. or like candy corn. Well, circus peanuts weren't really a good Halloween f- candy. You couldn't really like, there weren't like individually wrapped or anything. No, I guess you're right. I was from the era where, you know, all of your candy has to be wrapped because people are putting razor blades in apples or something, which never, ha- literally never happened. Oh no, th- it's still going on. Well, now it's fentanyl, not because of like Fox News. Yeah, rainbow it, fentanyl. <laughs> drug dealers are giving out incredibly expensive drugs to kids because- Free fentanyl to kids. <laughs> morons. Like, seriously, I can't, I can't imagine being that stupid that you believe something like that. Especially being like of that age, usually like older Gen X, older boomer, where you know that's not how drugs work. And yet you're still okay with believing that because it <laughs> confirms whatever bullshit fear that they've pumped into you. I'm saucy today. Yeah, you are. I'm, wow. Yeah. This is going to be a fun episode. I'm excited. Maybe not. We'll see. Whoa. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. Well, so besides that. Oh, yeah. Uh, besides that. Everything has been kind of nuts over here, but for the better. I've been inviting people over to take some portraits, mm-hmm. which has been really, really fun. So I've kind of just been busy, okay. much more busy than usual. And I don't think I'm handling it very well. <laughs> I don't think that uh, I can do too much at the same time because I go insane. But eh. You know, you live and you learn, you know what I mean? Well, you had a, a scary thing happen to you today, <laughs> didn't you? It's very Halloween yes. themed in a way. I guess so. Okay. Uh, all right. Now I have to admit it to everybody. So I went and picked up the Roloflex and of course, Harry charged me more money for something because it needed something else, whatever. You were getting a CLA on a Roloflex. Is that right? Yes. Okay. That's exactly right. So I picked it up and then I left it in my car and I thought that I took it out, but I wasn't sure. I can't remember. And it's been a couple days. And then today I was like, I really need to start pressure testing the Rolly Marine. Mm-hmm. So I looked for the Roloflex <laughs> and I couldn't find it. So I tore my car apart and I tore my office apart. I am so glad you can't see the floor because it looks like someone broke into my <laughs> house and raided the place. Oh, uh, you've got gremlins. So yeah, all day I've been stressed out about that. I I did manage to like get out still and do a little bit of testing with the the Super 8 camera in the water. It's like 88 degrees today. It's ridiculous. So beautiful day, nice swim, but still completely stressed. And so then finally I told you about it because I didn't tell you about it for a while. Like I kind of kept it a secret because I knew you were going to give me that like long sigh. Of disappointment. Well, okay, the Eric long sigh of disappointment. Well, let's be clear, though. It wasn't in your car for a couple of days. It was six. I don't know. I don't think it was all six. Though. I think it no, was maybe like- No, obviously it wasn't all six. We'll get to the end of the story, but you didn't notice it for six days. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay. Continue. But so- for some reason, I thought I did take it out of the car at some point because you're not really supposed to like, you know- leave stuff in cars also it's not exactly a car it's a van and it's insulated and hidden it's not like you know yeah it it still does get hot but it's it's not too bad was it hidden in the van yes i'm not gonna tell you where the my hiding place was Oh, okay but it wasn't in there it wasn't in the hiding place Uh uh-oh 
So where where was it? Was it a, did somebody did somebody? I thought someone it? stole. I was like, someone stole my. Someone broke into my car and only stole the Rolleiflex. <laughs> they didn't take anything else. They just took the Rolleiflex. So I was like freaking out. So I finally was like, okay, I can't handle this by myself. I need to. I need to tell Eric about it. But you know what? I knew that if I told you, then I would probably find it. It's like one of those things when you finally give up, then the answer comes. It's, it's always in the last place you look. So I walked by the record player and poof, it just appeared there. Someone broke into your house and gave you your Rolleiflex bag. Yeah. They were like, oh my God, she didn't even put film in this stupid thing. So they broke into my house and put it back here. Perfect. <laughs> so that means that by next episode, I should have submerged the Rolling Marine at least one to two or three times, hopefully, fingers crossed. So soon, very, very soon. Well, here's hoping. Enough about that nonsense. Eric. What? Oh, my gosh. You're so sassy. A little sassy today. Oh, I like it. Okay, tell me. What you been up to? What have you been doing? <sighs> well, okay, I haven't been really doing like a whole lot. It's been very smoky here. Like if you look at like the the... I don't know what it's called, like the the shitty air index or something. We're well over 200 in Seattle lately because of all the forest fires. And it's it's really bad. My throat's a little scratchy. I'm kind of <coughs> coughing here and there. And it's not a lot of fun not having a great time with that. And it's, it's not even like, like, oh, smoke brings like beautiful sunsets. And uh, no, not here anyway. But there's other things going on in life, I guess. I got a new book. I got a new uh, photography book. Ooh. This is uh, a book taken by photographer uh, Dennis O'Regan, and he traveled with Duran Duran for the 1984 tour. So when I was a kid, I had what was essentially like a book of the tour called Sing Blue Silver, and I loved it. And so now he's gone back through all of his negatives and picked out, I don't know, a couple hundred photos that he really likes and that are really good. He's a you know, good photographer. <laughs> and so he released a book and it's it's pretty good. It, it's, it's interesting. I can compare it sort of to, do you remember a few months ago, I got the Weird Al book? Yeah, yeah. By his drummer, who was a photographer. Mm-hmm. And so what that was, it was very much the photographer's story. Bermuda Schwartz was the photographer and he talks about, you know, talks about shooting it and what was going on at the time. And then he also talks a little bit about his camera. And so with this one, there's not much of that at all. It's more of a Duran Duran book rather than a photo book of Duran Duran. And that's mm-hmm. kind of a bummer, but it's probably, mm-hmm. I mean, look, if you're a guy named Dennis O'Regan and you want to release a book and Duran Duran is your selling point, you're, you're probably going to go with that over... I'm Dennis O'Regan. I don't know. It's it's good, but there's definitely something I feel that's a little lacking there. It feels more like a Duran Duran book than a photography book. And that's a bummer. Well, maybe because he was expecting people like you were probably expecting it to be about Duran Duran. I mean, I was expecting it to be about them, of course, but I was also expecting maybe a little peek behind the scenes on like how he shot and, you know, maybe some contact sheets. There's some pages that are set up similar to contact sheets and they do have some series of photos and that's interesting, but it really seems to be like photography isn't the, the main point of the book. Even photos of Duran Duran isn't, doesn't seem to be like the main point of the book. It seems to be, this is going to sound weird. It seems to be Duran Duran photos rather than photos of Duran Duran. Oh my goodness. You know what I'm saying though? It's like, it's- No, I do. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's kind of a, 
a bummer in that way, though I think I'm probably the only person who has the book who thinks that's the bummer. I think that most photographers get excited about photography books and it would be a bummer if you were expecting like a little bit more behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. That, that totally makes sense. I'm not expecting like with the Carnival Strippers book, I'm not expecting like a full other volume of here's how I did the photos, but it would be kind of neat to have a little bit of that. There's a lot of books like this coming out. Like there was one on Depeche Mode that was just released not that long ago. Um, Sunny 16 actually had the photographer on. Nice, and look at them. Yeah, and I think it's I think that's kind of cool that we're sort of looking back at the photography of the 80s, kind of the last, like, especially the 80s, the last hurrah of film photography. Mm-hmm. And we're sort of not reassessing it maybe, but kind of just like looking back at it and saying, okay, here's here's the photos we took. And that's yeah. kind of cool. It's got that's kind of cool. You know, I yeah. would for this one, I'd like there to be more behind the scenes type stuff, but it's it's cool as it is. On that. If you listened to the last Dev Party, I mentioned the band Karate. I just got their box set. They reissued everything into a big box set. And the box set is a booklet. And in the booklet is a contact sheet taken uh, of them on, it looks like, I think it's some kind of slide film, but it was obviously taken with an RB67 because it has the little notches up at the top and bottom. Ooh. And so I looked at it and went, oh my God, someone shot them with an RB. And that's pretty cool. Obviously it wasn't about that. It was just a booklet for the, you know, for the box set. But it was just kind of neat to see that that is is more you know, photographer centric than this whole entire book of Duran Duran photos. That's okay too. Each episode, we put on our creepy house slippers and our uh, ghoulish cardigans and <laughs> check. Our scary answering machine. There is a reason I am not a horror writer. When we yeah. ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever ghoulish and fiendish ass question. Fiendish ass? Really? <laughs> fiendish ass question. I like that. Yeah. We ask you to call in and leave us a voice message to the question. And what was the question this time around, Vanya? What happens to your cameras when you die? Yes. We are all going to die at some point. So let's push the button. Hiya, kids. Big Bird here. Just wanted to ask you to leave a message at the tone or I'll come over and break your windows and steal your hubcaps and things. Thanks a lot, kids. Bye. Hi, guys. Michael here. So this one is quite easy for me because I definitely am not planning on some weird rituals like being buried with a favorite camera or some shit. I think ideally I'll just make a list of my closest family and friends and each one of them receives a camera that I think could be useful for him or her. And if not, I would like them to simply seek for someone who may be interested in using that particular model and give it away for free for that person. And I think I'll be satisfied with both of these solutions. Cheers, guys. I like it. I mean, you you can be a little selective. Of course, you'll be dead and you'll have no idea if any of these things happened. But, you know, if you have respectful relatives, which, you know, some of us might, they can see to distributing your cameras as you wish. Yeah, I think I could probably make fun of them one last time. 
from the grave. I kind of like it. Okay. Yeah, just like, you know, like how you do like a letter or something. You can be like, and for, you know. Oh, you want this to be like, like how movie wills are done. Yes, of course. Okay. Sure. Yeah. yeah, bring everybody together and have some creepy lawyer type person yeah. give out cameras. Okay, I, I could get behind that. I mean, as theatrical as possible, of course. Basically, everything has to be as theatrical as possible. Okay. Always and forever. That. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be really difficult to not answer these ourselves. While I we're... know. And that's not my answer, by the way. I'm just saying I like his idea and I think he could, you could... There's yeah. there's a lot to play with there. Yeah, I think with all of these, we're going to uh, we're going to hear their ideas and then give tips on how they can make it better. Sorry, <laughs> it's Halloween. I have two cameras that I hope that my children keep after I die. One was my dad's camera, which is a Zeiss Icon Contina, which he had from before he was married in. The early 60s took all the photographs of my me my brother and my sister as we were growing up into our teenage years um, so that's very sentimental um, the other one is my camera that I had when I was in my early 20s and I took all the photographs of my children growing up with that so hopefully the, the kids will want to keep those two cameras and then all my other cameras, if they don't want to use them, then hopefully they will put them in the hands of somebody that will. Oh, there's a lot of hoping going on there, Jaya. Well, I love Jaya. Totally going to happen. He's not asking for much. It's literally two cameras. That's true. They could do that. It is true. And he has two children. So perfect. It, it is perfect. I mean, we're all going to be faced with this to an extent. But he's being faced with what a lot of the baby boomers are being faced with now. It's that um, nobody wants their stuff. Like, here's a 500-pound hutch. It's all yours. And I just don't, I don't want a 500-pound hutch. And even if I did want one, I, I can bury you in a 500-pound hutch. Are you kidding me? That's a family heirloom. Don't treat it that way. <laughs> now, it's my, my, my parents' house is full of antiques handed down from generations. And that's I love that. wonderful if there was like a like my family museum, but there isn't. So when my parents die or maybe put themselves in a home or whatever they're planning on doing, I'm gonna be stuck with at least the decision on what to do with all of this stuff. And if you've gone into an antique store anytime in the past 10 years, you'll know that these decisions have already been made and there's just warehouses and warehouses of old hutches everywhere and nobody wants them because, well, nobody has room for them and the antique stores are asking like $700 for each of them and nobody wants to pay that much for them. Yeah, but this is a very small camera. In Jaya's case, yes, this is a very small camera. And so I'm glad that he is managing his expectations. And I, and I like that. He is not being my mother, uh, a big point in your favor, Jaya. And he's saying, look, it's just a tiny camera. Uh, don't don't give it to some antique store. And I think that's fair enough. There's always room on a shelf for, for, for a family camera. Hey guys, it's Suzanne. Um, man, this is a hard question. I'm gonna say that I hope that maybe at least one of my cameras gets buried with me, although I'm not going to be buried. I don't want to be cremated. Um, so burn it with me. <laughs> and 
the rest, I just hope they go to somebody who appreciates them and will use them like I did. I guess that's all we can hope for in the end. Maybe one of my kids will use them. My youngest, she might. She likes to shoot film, so let's hope she does. I love how she figured it out as she went. Like, didn't have like a plan before she before she called in, but but by the time she was done, she had it figured out. And that's yep. why we're here. We provide yep. that service for you. <laughs> I mean, we're literally doing nothing, but we're just letting you talk and letting you work it out. I like how she was like, uh, at least I want to get buried with one. And then she re- remembered like, yeah, no one wants to get buried. I don't want to get, who wants to get buried? They're like, oh, I want to be buried. No, I'm going to wake up in there and scratch my way out. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like fun. Are more people getting cremated these days? I think so. I don't I know if it's like better for the environment though. Maybe just throwing your body in like a pit somewhere would be better. <laughs> uh, I mean, dare to dream. Yeah, I don't know. I know. My family gets cremated, but we also get gravestones. Like we want the best of both. Yeah, you do. <laughs> they do though. We all have gravestones. I don't, I don't have one. But Well, I was like, well, you already have one? No. Did you get to pick it out yourself? No, 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 no. I don't, there's no family I kind of want to pick mine out. <laughs> Well, that makes the most sense. Like I go to, right? I've been going like, to who a, gets to make that decision? That's bullshit. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I agree. I've been going to a lot of of graveyards, and some of the <laughs> some of the newer graveyards. You're getting some ideas. <laughs> keeping my options open, but you'll see a lot of gravestones that you know, like maybe the husband has died first, and that the wife is still alive, and her name is on it, or vice versa. And so you can see, like, well, at least one of them probably had a hand in the tombstone. Mm-hmm. And there's some like like some of the newer tombstones, like the laser etching and all of that, and like the weird like incredibly realistic photos on them. Yeah, that's creepy. It's freaky. I don't like those. I don't like it. I'm I'm impressed that we have that technology. I just wish that we would use it for something else because that's. I just don't want to see their face. I think a, the a carving is is great. You know, like a name and a date, and maybe something funny. And that's about it. Now some of them used to have photos. They used to be buried with like like the cameo type photos. Yeah. Um, I have not seen one in person. I mean, that probably doesn't last all that long. No, that seems like something that would get stolen pretty quickly. Would they burn a camera? Like if you ask them, like when when Juniper Prito died, we had um, we had them cremate one of her little favorite toys with her. And they were cool with doing, well, they said they were cool with doing that. I mean, it's really hard to tell. Yes, they would. So the interesting thing is, like, I saw something recently about cremation, and they pulled out this, like, bucket <laughs> okay. of titanium parts from people's yeah. surgeries and things. Yeah. So it's like, everything burns except those things, and then they collect all that. Do you know what happened? Because I had a friend that had a titanium jaw. And it's probably she, when, still at the cremation place or they recycle it. Interesting. So if you want something like that, you have to like probably put in a special request. Like, hey, can I get my jaw back? <laughs> I know I'm dead, but I just sort of want to have it. Well, okay. that would be something like, yeah, give this to my daughter. Like in six months from now, though, <laughs> just send it in the mail. <laughs> just surprise her. It'll be funny. Surprise. Okay, this is Dave from Green Bay, and you have literally asked the question that my wife asks me almost on a day-to-day basis. What am I going to do with all these cameras when you die? So 
I don't know. I would like to think my kids would want them. I would like to think my wife might want them. But the truth of the matter is they might each take one as a as a memento of uh, my existence or something. But after that, I don't know what they're going to do with them. Um, same with all my platinum and palladium prints and other things. My wife has just said, where are we going to go with all this? You know, so... That's a great question. I think we need to develop some kind of a plan for everybody uh, who listens to this podcast to donate their photography equipment or something when they die. Uh, Dave, um, if your wife is asking you, what are we going to do with all these cameras when you die? She doesn't want them. But also make sure that you have a food tester as well. Yes, she might be plotting your death. (laughs) <laughs> there was a hint of that in there. Yeah, like maybe she's just thinking out loud. <laughs> yeah. Having like a, everybody from the podcast pull their cameras before they die. I, I don't know if that's practical, but... It's a good idea. It's not a bad idea to have something like that. But that really is just giving away your stuff before you die, which I think is is kind of an important thing. Obviously, we're not, we don't know exactly when we're going to die. You know, there's accidental deaths and, you know untimely deaths, things like that. I mean, I would want like some of my stuff to go to some kind of community project. That would be great. Yeah. And that should happen preferably before you die since so you would get the the final say in that for sure. Of course, after you're dead, you're not going to care because you're dead. I mean, hopefully I can haunt them and watch them use my cameras. (laughs) (laughs) You're stupid. I know what's going to happen to his cameras because I have some of those cameras from people where, you know, their grandfather was a photographer, but they're just not really into it or they're digital and they just they don't really have room or they just don't want to deal with it. So then they end up giving it to me. So I shoot with the camera and appreciate it. And then I send it along to somebody else. And I enjoy that a lot. I think it's nice. Also, it's nice to hear the stories from the cameras, you know, hopefully they have really good stories about this camera, th- these cameras, and when they pass them on, they could be like, you know. Or what you could do, Dave, is put some secret notes inside the cameras <laughs> for the next people. Sorry. Sorry about fucking up your first roll with the camera, but here is a note. Boo. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Hi, guys. This is Laura. I'm glad you asked the question because I realized that I have more children than I have cameras, so I think I need to buy another camera. Um, in all honesty, though, I, I um, am not very worried about what happens to my cameras after I die. Uh, it would be kind of cool if somebody in my family kept uh, the camera that came from my dad and the camera that came from my grandpa. Uh, but other than that, no worries. It's kind of a theme, you know, people handing down cameras and you just you just hope and hope and hope that they'll kind of stay. And I think it's a realistic hope, unlike the aforementioned Hutch. I think that, you know, having a little camera, even if it's just, you know, we always say we want someone to shoot it and all of that. And that's wonderful. But even if it's just, you know, a little display piece, display piece on a mantle or shelf or something. I think that's important, too, even if it's never used again. You never know. Maybe their kids' kids will be like, what's that thing there? Yeah, maybe. Or maybe film will get so popular that 
everybody will shoot with it and digital will just die. And then all the digital cameras will go for sale. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Um, sure. So we have one more and here we go. Hey there, Eric and Bonnie, David Ortega calling in. I actually have a dead person's camera. It's a crown view camera made like between 1936, 38 to 1942. So about 80 years old made by the graphics company. Um, it actually belonged to Fred Haynes. And it's crazy because this case that it came in was a really nice, like, sturdy case. I mean, as you expect from something old. And he did has his old address of 168 Franklin Avenue, Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. So I'm in California, and this thing came all the way from New Jersey. It's just kind of crazy to know that, I mean, this person probably died already, and I have his camera. And in the case of my cameras and stuff, I feel like my kid, who's just a newborn, is probably going to take all my cameras eventually, <laughs> hopefully. I do actually think about that a lot. Most of my cameras are used cameras, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think I own one that I bought brand new. <laughs> I almost got my hands on an uh, Iconos, like a Nikonos like five once that was like new in a box. But for the most part, oh, cool. all of my cameras are used. Yeah. So. I assume that all my cameras are from dead people. It, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess so. You're, you're probably right. I don't, maybe not the RB because that is a, a like a newer camera. But I mean, it, it could be that they were used a lot in the '80s. And Strokes are a thing, and we can we can hope that the people who used our cameras before us are dead. But I mean, most of the you know a lot of the old ones that I have, certainly the people are dead. He would be the oldest person alive. <laughs> yes, that is true. I mean, you have his damn camera. Yeah. I better give it back. <laughs> you better give it back so he can die in peace. This is what's keeping him tied to the, is that, I think that's how it works, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm a little rusty on RIP Fred Haynes. Well, thank you everybody for calling in and leaving us a message. You can give a listen to our next episode of the Dev Party to hear our take on the question, whatever that would be. But until then, Vanya. Yes. What is the next question? We are asking. Well, we're still going to go a little spooky. Because it is still the spooky season. Okay. Technically, sure. If, if you were asked to take photos at someone's funeral, how would you go about doing it? So call our answering machine and leave us a message. And of course, by call up, we mean go to Instagram and leave us a voice message on direct messages. And if we like you very, very, very much, and of course we do, we will play it on the next episode. Now, the deadline for that is Tuesday, November 1st. Get him in. Amy Badincini's photographic world is filled with lowriders, punk rock, and cats, sometimes all at the same time. Her slightly shifted color shots of car culture caught our eyes years ago, and we are stoked to finally get a chance to sit down and talk with her. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Hey, Eric and Vanya. Hello. How's your day? It's so hot. You live in LA, right? Or like LA area? Yeah, and I had to drive out to the valley today and I immediately left as soon as possible. <laughs> but yeah, it's been pretty hot. I was so stoked for like the October weather, but yeah, now it's like hot again suddenly. It was weird. Like I woke up and I was like, oh no, it's going to be like 
you could just tell right away that it was just going to be a really, really hot day. Yeah. Well, so Amy, we're so excited to have you on. Uh, let's get into it. We're going to be talking all about cars. So I'm super excited about this. But tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into photography. Let's see. I got into photography just kind of like on a whim. I had never gotten into d doing digital. I never really learned how to shoot digital. I'm 39 and I had kind of like, you know, not really thought about photography at all until um, maybe like in 2018, me and my family were going to go on a vacation to Maui and I wanted to just get good, you know, family pictures. And so I just like, you know, looked on, started looking on Instagram and I was like, do I need to rent a camera from Sammy's or like, what do I need to do to get like decent looking pictures? And then like, I just came across like, like I was familiar with his work before, but I was looking at uh, Esteban Oriol's pictures and like, I was like, wow, this guy gets like really good pictures. It's just like the same kind of camera that my dad has that's just been sitting there so I borrowed my dad's uh Pentax Spotmatic and I bought some Portra and took it to Maui and I'm pretty sure I ruined like a ton of shots not figuring out why is this film advance so hard to turn like and I would <laughs> try and roll it back and reload it and you know all the the, the newbie mistakes you know and mm -hmm. but I did get some good shots and you know, we went to uh, a cat sanctuary in Lanai and, and my best portrait shot came from there and I was so excited about it. He didn't really teach me anything really to how to shoot with it except, oh, make sure these holes that are in the film line up to the, the thing right here when you're loading it. And that was basically <laughs> all he told me. <laughs> so most of your photos are of what people would call like classic cars but your photos are not really classic car photos. So what makes your photos different from those typical classic car photos? Um, I'm not really sure. Like a classic car that's just like a stock classic car is like the Beach Boys and like lowriders are like the Rolling Stones, you know? <laughs> they're grittier and they're more like, they just have that, that little bit of extra something, you know, that makes them so cool. And when I think in my head, like some, some shots will maybe look like here's a book of Cadillacs or here's a calendar you know, of yeah. classic cars. And sometimes I kind of try to go for that look where it's very clean and doesn't have a bunch of dust and too much over exposure or all, all that stuff that, you know, sometimes happens with film. But I think my pictures are a little bit different because I try to imbue like a sense of the, the moment in it. Mm -hmm. Like they're not really like most of them aren't like staged. There's just me walking around and oh, here's like a, a moment that's never going to happen again. Like, I, I really need to capture this. My brother had like a low rider when he was younger. And I actually developed some of his like old pictures. And I think it was at the Hawthorne Airport where they had the car show or something. I don't know. He used to go like to, ton, to a ton of them. But yeah, like when I see these, like it reminds me of L.A. Can you maybe give us a little introduction to like what the lowrider scene is in in Los Angeles. My experience in the lowrider scene as, you know, as kind of an outside like observer would be that it's very family oriented, it's very close knit, and there's a ton of passion and, and love that goes into these vehicles and and a lot of love for uh 
each other. So, and even among us uh, photographers and videographers, it feels very, you know, familial. So I think that's a, a large part of why I was attracted to it because it was so, you know, the people that are involved care about it very much and there's a lot of passion in it. So, I mean, I've seen people changing diapers and the back of <laughs> these like beautiful, like <laughs> beautiful antique cars. So, I mean, they're a lot like old cameras, you know, they're priceless like antiques, but they're, they're rolling around on the street. They're getting used. People are, are hopping them. Do you see like some similarities between the lowrider scene and the film photography scene? I mean, yeah, because there's a deep appreciation for old things in general, like why shoot film when you could just buy a digital camera or shoot on your iPhone, you know, or why drive a lowrider that, you know, is like constantly needs work. And, you know, oftentimes it's like breaking down when you could just get a Camry, you know, right. it's like, because they're, because they're beautiful <laughs> and, and there's a, a lot of a value to them. I love looking at old cars. So I guess I wanted to know like how you got into taking pictures of these cars. Are you from like a car family? I don't know anything about cars. Like, let's just put that out there, you know? <laughs> you can appreciate ca good looking cars. Though. I, I, yes, I absolutely like love looking at them. I love the way the light hits the chrome and, and the candy paint, but I, I know absolutely nothing about how cars work or, or anything like that. The little bit I do know was like information that was generously shared with me by, by people who, who own these cars. So uh, when I started doing film photography, I mostly shot flowers, botanicals, and I really got into like how to frame them and how you know, to capture the way the light was hitting them and getting all that bokeh in the background and, and making them look nice. And But it was just like a really kind of lonely kind of way to photograph. And I'm actually like a very shy person. And I was going through like a pretty like rough patch in my, in my life. And I had moved back to uh, Canoga Park where I'm originally from and grew up. And I just kind of wanted a way to like connect with my community in a meaningful way through my photography. And I'd always just kind of loved cars. When I was uh, younger, I, I used to paint and I was deeply like influenced by Robert Williams and the whole like rockabilly, like car culture and that whole aesthetic. So I've always been really into looking at them. It just made sense for me to like just go and check out uh, a local cruise. And I just like fell in love with the cars and the people and, and the whole the magic of it. Robert Williams paintings are very like, saturated. Mm -hmm. And your photos tend to be very saturated. Was there a connection there? I think there is. My, my, I think my photos are very, they tend to look loud. Mm -hmm. Whether it's like my punk rock photos or, or my lowrider photos, I like a lot of color and movement and excitement. So I, I think, yeah, I think there was a connection. I don't want to say I'm not a very good black and white photographer, but that part of my brain needs to like, you know, develop more. Because mm -hmm. I, I really like to compose with color. So w when you're out, what does a typical shooting day look like for you? I mean, sometimes I'll get notice of an event and I'll be like, okay, I'll really get into it and be like, okay, well, the sun's going to be over here and golden hours this time. And I want to get this in the background and, and, and stuff like that. But, um, and I can prepare for it by bringing, okay, like I want to do long exposures. I'm going to bring a, a light source and a tripod and the uh, shutter release cable and cinestill and, 
and all that. But sometimes I'll just say like, you know what? Like, I don't have anything with me. I'm going to go to CVS and buy a disposable camera. And I want to go here and shoot something because there's clouds in the sky right now. And I know it's going to be look look a certain way. So there's certain things that I like to, to prepare for. Like if I'm shooting like a punk show, I don't want to bring my SLR anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's understandable. I want to bring a point. I want to bring a point shoot. <laughs> yeah, no, I do the same thing. I I have a a show camera. It's my show camera. It's a the Minolta Hymatic. So it's all just like one solid piece. And even if they don't like allow cameras in places, like I'm like, oh, it's just like a stupid film camera, you know. And they're like, all right, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I try not to be obnoxious. A lot of the shows I go to, there's a ton of other photographers, and I realize that they're probably getting bombarded with flash. So I'm like, okay, like let me like step back and use it sparingly. So you do have a few. You do have a few photos of of punk shows. What's your history with the scene? Oh well, you know that could be a whole other thing. But mostly, it's just punk rock. It always like surfaces in my life when I need it. Mm-hmm. Kind of weird. <laughs> I like you know, that. when I was when I was like an angsty preteen and I had no direction and it probably wasn't like the most positive <laughs> direction, <laughs> but it gave me a direction, which is which is better than nothing. And this like last part of my life when I was kind of feeling like lost at sea, like I just kind of like got back into it and it just feels like home. I think the punk scene is very good at establishing a foundation for you, for a lot of people. You know, it it does feel very much like home for me. I you know I spent my formative years in in the on an East Coast punk scene, and it it really it is home. It's like a second home. You know, you we kind of grew up at, at mom and dad's home, and then you also kind of grew up maybe not very much, but you grew up a little bit more in the <laughs> punk scene. Mm-hmm. And now it, it it does. You listen to the music, or you talk to people who are also like you know scene adjacent or in the scene, and there is like that siblinghood there and I, I like that it's something that i don't know if it exists anymore for kids i think it does i think it it's would, a little different i think it is a little different and that's okay but i don't know it's something very nice something i've been appreciating more lately as i became an adult i kind of became disconnected from live music and getting back into it and in like a proper scene like how la has uh, i just feel so blessed i mean as like a 39 year old Asian mom like I think (laughs) I think I do stand out but no one's ever made me feel like I'm not welcome there you know it it brings like a whole meaning to a whole new meaning to all ages show (laughs) right right you know to see like the old folks there (laughs) you know I know. I went to a show just recently and it, I didn't realize it was all ages and I felt so bad for not bringing my daughter with me. I was like, oh no, she's going to kill me. <laughs> but yeah, that's, cool your daughter's into it. She just informed me. <laughs> she broke up with her boyfriend who she just started dating like recently because she wanted to spend more time on her band and music and he was boring. <laughs> <laughs> She's so badass. You were actually interrupting their their practice right now. Yeah, we are. They were practicing. I kicked them out. <laughs> it's really cute, though. I'm like so happy. I just, I love it. I tried to take my my son, uh, my stepson, who's 16, mm. to a backyard show last year, and he and he said, "This is like the purge," and I'm scared. I want to get out of here. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so funny. 
<laughs> I love it. I'm like, there's a kid who's like 12 in the pit. <laughs> He'll remember that day, though. He'll be like, yeah, my mom took me to this like backyard punk show. It was a trip. Yeah, that's so <laughs> rad. Good for you. So you have done some portraits also, like Bear and Oreo. How do you approach portraits of people differently than maybe like the cars so you know as an artist I would like to say when I do a portrait I am going to bring out a quality in that person that they didn't know they had or some other gibberish but honestly I'm just standing there and I'm like totally petrified of like messing it up because now I have someone to answer to <laughs> that trusts me to take a portrait of them you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying like yeah, when I'm taking pictures of inanimate objects if it comes out bad probably no one's gonna know about it because I'm just not gonna put it out there you know but if it's a portrait of a person I'm like oh okay like this person trusts me to take an image of them so I better get it right <laughs> so <laughs> a little bit more pressure I guess I would say yeah, and as someone who's not a professional, I'm I, I think I would consider myself like an advanced hobbyist. Mm -hmm. I'm still like Love trying it. to not wreck pictures. <laughs> Am I focusing on the right area of their face and the light flattering on them? Like I just want to make them look good, you know? Mostly I'm just like <laughs> an abject terror of my own uh skills, like when I'm doing a picture of a person. And sometimes it's easier than others. When it's like golden hour and the lights just start, I'm just like yeah. far away. Like this is going to look great. When it's like night, like the picture of uh, Bear and Oreo, a.k.a. Mr. Puffdales, I was, it was long exposure <laughs> mm -hmm. involving Ooh. a cat. So it's like, you know. <laughs> and the cat oh is goodness. more steady than, than I'm assuming, I'm assuming Bear is the man. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> then Bear Oreo is more steady than Bear, which is impressive. Good job, Oreo. It's hard. Like with the cat, it's you know, I'm like making sure like like to get them both in frame and like not blurry and can you is there any story behind them? Yeah, we I think I really like that shoot because you know, we kind of like chose the location that was what that was meaningful to him, like together. And I really like that location. I've been wanting to to shoot there. It's the Velislavice panorama, mm -hmm. which has that, you know, cool old school theater vibe. And it has that red light on top, like a little maraschino cherry. And I just always thought it would be cool to like shoot a car in front of there. And it was super awesome that uh, someone I knew liked that particular location, too, and, and wanted to shoot there. So as far as, like, shoots go, I couldn't have asked for more, you know? Like, I got to come prepared with all the equipment that I wanted to use and work with uh, people and, and an animal that I vibe with. So that was, that was awesome. Of course, the, the splashy colors, mm -hmm. my, my signature. Uh, I, I really like to use the neon lights and stuff too. Mm -hmm. So it was good. It was cool. I hope I get to to do that again sometime. It's really awesome. Really rad. Yeah. What's next for you with photography? Well, what's next in the immediate future? You know, I'm going to be like vending with a couple other vendors locally. So that's always fun because I get to. I can, because I'm a shy person, like I need a thing to like be able to talk to people. So when people approach me about my photos and want to talk to me about them I, and I get to engage, you know, with people, that's always cool. And then in the near future, I would also like to um, put a zine out. Mm -hmm. So that would be cool. Yeah. 
I'm just trying to kind of figure out if I need to buy software, if I could do it for free, or if should I just go completely old school and start taping and gluing and scanning or it's just like kind of in this in the uh, brainstorming stages right now. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And then also like I'm hoping one of these days I can get in a group show or something so that way you know I can also like engage with people about my work I want to start uh, making darkroom prints once I figure out how to shoot in black and white (laughs) 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 so that's what's on my plate right now is black and white like intimidating for you or I think it it is because of the the style I shoot and like how I shoot and how I compose. It takes like a whole element out. So I think it is. And for you, I mean, it's a large element. Color is incredibly important in your photos. Yeah, yeah, it is a it is a large element. So I started developing like my own film over over lockdown. Yeah. That was my thing. I was like, I'm going to learn to develop film over nice. lockdown. That's the thing I'm going to do. And then I started with, you know, Eric's DCN2 kits. And for color, I almost like exclusively used that because the one time I did like a C41 dev on like a really important shoot, like the colors came out like so messed up. I you were like, sad. <laughs> I was like, wah, wah. Like, <laughs> Look at Eric's face. He's so happy right now. I, His I, tail I, is I, wagging. I, I, yeah, that slipped my mind. That's right. That's, so so this is why I like your color photos so much. <laughs> I, think I knew there was I a reason. It. I just, it's, it's almost all ECN2, unless it's the ones that I sent to a, a lab because I'm scared of putting them or yeah. winning it with my own like dust and scanning and crap. I, I have a couple roles that I haven't quite finished yet, and I'm going to do another dev soon. So I'm excited about that. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really easy and i whenever i talk to other film photographers and they're like oh i don't have a lot of space it seems like intimidating i'm just like if i could do it like i think anybody can do it you know that's what i always say yeah yeah oh my goodness all right so i think we have uh just one last question left it is the answering machine question what happens to your cameras when you die I don't have anything that like that's like super exciting or like, you know, worth a lot of money or anything. But I think what I would do with my cameras is just donate them back to, you know, whatever film community is going to be around, hopefully a long time from now. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, we hope, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just uh, I just love like the the photographers that I've gotten to know through the film community and through, um, you know, shooting lowriders and and shooting punk shows like these are all amazing people and i would love to have these cameras in use even you know they don't always work right but here you go (laughs) (laughs) yeah but uh, i think it's it's just like one of those things like all three of these communities that like i'm a part of i feel like i go in with the with the mindset of like what can i do to like add to it what experiences and what resources do i have to like add to it you know and that i think that's like an important mindset to have when you when you go into like well pretty much anything you know yeah absolutely should be yeah well thank you so much this was like it seems so fast thank you so much you guys have a good night okay you guys thank you (laughs) thank you bye 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 (laughs) 
a discovery was made in the ruins of an old Parisian building. Construction workers unearthed the wooden box hidden for over a century. When they broke it open, what they discovered was as repulsive as it was enticing. Contained within were photographs printed on glass of Satan, of demons and skeletons, dancing and torturing the living. There were scenes of Satan's harvest, of goblins, of women bathing with the devil himself. Along with these mysterious depictions was a note which read, This is the work of my life. It is thus that I dreamed of hell. If my visions are true, then the wicked may rest assured. The afterlife will be sweet for them to bear. This collection of images was called Les Diableries. They were photographs of intricate clay sculptures depicting numerous hellscapes, photographed by stereo cameras to render them in three dimensions. The typical Diablerie was a diorama depicting a number of scenes filled with Satan and skeletons. Demons and devils engaged in various acts. Sometimes these acts were fantastical, like the Black Sabbath or Satan's Fit Day. Others depicted Judgment Day and Orpheus leaving hell. And still others were weirdly mundane. Return from the race course in hell. New Year's Day in hell. And the Infernal Railway in, well, you get the idea. Though all the original 72 Diableries were different, they all showed the devil partaking in some hellish happening. And though the styles of the individual artists showed through, the basic idea, the devil doing stuff with skeletons, was carried throughout the series. Satan and his pals were essentially actors playing whatever roles the artist placed them in. Think of it as how the Japanese toy company Sanrio uses Hello Kitty, but here the emphasis is on the hell. To give you an idea of what we're talking about, let's describe one. Here is number 20 in the series, Concert Infernal, the infernal concert. It depicts Satan conducting a small skeleton orchestra. Like all Diableries, it is a single scene. This one is carved out of a block of clay. Satan is on the left. His right hand with a wand is raised. Below him in the orchestra pit are various skeletons holding tubas, drums, a cello, and various woodwind instruments. There's also a pipe organ, which one skeleton is cranking. Behind them are seated three skeletons, a panel of judges. The middle one has his hands over his ears. The concert is set outside, and there's a beautifully rendered moonscape behind them with little puffy clouds. Most of it was sculpted out of clay. It's possible the clouds were cotton, but it seems more likely that it was a painted backdrop. We'll be including a few photos of these Diableries in our show notes, so it might be a good idea to take a peek at them if you have no idea what we're talking about. All 72 of these Diableries, and many more from the time period, depicted Satan and often featured hell and demons. Now, it would be incredibly tempting to view these as sort of cautionary tales. The church had long used Satan as a way to scare believers into believing harder. It kept people on the straight and narrow to know that any deviation could result in eternal damnation. It's tempting to say that, but here the devil is literally in the details. Like we said, for centuries, the Christian church has used Satan and hell as scare tactics. Many Protestant churches continue this superstitious tradition today. Satan wants your soul and will devise all sorts of schemes to turn you away from the path of righteousness. And if anything goes wrong or society is corrupt, that's Satan's doing. Through much of the Middle Ages, church leaders preached this devilry. During those times, much of the church service was in Latin. 
a language which was inconveniently dead. Many couldn't even read their own language, let alone read the Latin Bible. To reach these people, the church would put on mystery plays. In this case, the word mystery referred to miracles. These plays were about various saints and Bible stories, especially the miracles performed. In between these plays were what came to be known as diableries. Now, the term diablerie can be applied to really any work of art that shows the devil doing things. In between these mystery plays, it was a few people dressed up as devils making noise and causing troubles. It was a way of using humor to drive home the incredibly serious point that Satan was real. So watch the hell out. These plays and the diableries in between continued for centuries. But as they went on, their message became a bit fuzzier. The devil and his demons began to change, to lean into the comedy of it all. In a way, it reminds me of the Godzilla series. In the first movie, Godzilla was a literal representation of the atomic bomb dropped on Japan in World War II. As the series progressed, Godzilla became just a big monster crushing stuff. And by the end of the series, Godzilla was the good guy, defending Japan from a series of increasingly silly monsters. By the late 1700s, the demons were fun characters, more mischievous than satanic. And then, with the advent of lithography in the late 1700s, the plays generally died out, but the characters of the devil and the demons remained. Playing on the idea of the church's admonition that Satan was conveniently behind everything the church disapproved of, printers began publishing lithographs depicting the vileness brought by Satan. Really, it was just an excuse to publish images of orgies and fairly hardcore pornography. But behind it all, sometimes literally, was Satan. Beware, good Christians, just feast your eyes upon the writhing naked bodies and understand this is how Satan works. He's so bad. Of course, it wasn't all pornography, or, or maybe that should read surprisingly. It wasn't all pornography. Through the 1820s and 1830s, newspapers dedicated themselves to showing what was called the devil's hobbies, print depictions of the devil doing a variety of different things. In the late 1830s, the devil was everywhere. He was no longer a cautionary tale but just a character, an excuse to depict bad behavior. And it wasn't just lithographs. Soon, there were entire books about him. And through the late 1840s, there were plays, many, many plays, and operas, several running at the same time. Think of Broadway having five or six different musicals about Satan. Simply put, this took the fear out of Satan. By the 1850s in France and through much of Europe, Satan had lost his evil facade. He was now sort of like the Adam Sandler of his day, and vice versa. While the plays and books continued and increased, so did government oppression. This was the rule of Napoleon III. Though he had been elected and was due to step down at the end of his term, he decided he could better serve the people by becoming a dictator. Hmm, interesting. Thankfully, that would never happen today. By the early 1850s, he had already enacted a coup and had imprisoned thousands of his political opponents. Each piece of art had to pass by the censors to be published. If any political commentary that was even slightly anti-Napoleon III was detected, it was censored and done away with. Of course, this didn't mean that Satan wasn't allowed. Even Napoleon III loved a good devilry, and it was into this political landscape that our diableries were created. Let's pause to take a look at another one before delving further. So here is Le Chateau du Diable. 
Satan's castle. In the center of the frame is Satan himself, lounging on the banks of a river, fishing rod in hand. Surrounding him are various human women, half undressed, though still covering up all the naughty bits. There are skeletons too, some cavorting with the ladies, some just hanging out. Behind them is a painted backdrop of a rough stone castle. This diablerie is a satire of Napoleon III's court, complete with scandalous women and an old castle that he ordered to be restored. Many, though far from all, of these diableries were direct satires of the French emperor and empire. Others parodied French culture, and still others were just a bit of fun. The Diableries were the work of several sculptors, but the initial mind behind them was that of Francois-Benjamin Lamichet, a sort of art manager slash photographer slash gambling kingpin. He had been arrested several times for various crimes and in the mid-1850s was under surveillance by the police. He was suspected of photographing or at least trading pictures of the ladies working at the brothels. In 1857, he was sentenced to four months in prison for selling obscene photos. His son-in-law soon met the same fate. This whole ordeal spurred Lamaché to create the Diableries. But he wasn't an artist. In or around 1857, he met Pierre-Adolphe Henneter, a self-taught professional sculptor. As an additional benefit, Henneter had been working with a stereo photographer named Joseph Happy. A year or so after they met, Lamaché commissioned Henneter to begin work on the Diableries, but he also found another sculptor, Louis-Alfred Habert, who he had known since the 1830s. Neither sculptor was against the emperor. In fact, Henneter named one of his children after him, and Habert actually met Napoleon III and took a liking to him. But these Diableries were most certainly satires against the government. And so it's possible that Lemiche, the mastermind, was hiding this fact even from the sculptors themselves. Henneter and Haber sculpted the majority of the 72 initial Diableries, though there were two or three other sculptors involved. Many were unsigned, and it falls to speculation over who made what. Regardless of who made the Diablerie or why, each was photographed with a stereo camera. This allowed the viewer to see them in 3D by using a version of the stereoscope, a special viewer that combined the two images into one, thus creating the 3D effect, much like a Viewmaster. The Diableries, however, were a little different than your average stereo cards. While most stereo prints were viewed through essentially a set of binoculars, the Diableries were more like slides, which required some sort of backlighting to illuminate the photos. These were known as tissue views, or simply hold to the light views. At first glance, they look like stereo cards with identical black and white images on both the left and the right. But held up to the light, they became full color. This was because each image was constructed of two layers. The black and white one was printed on either glass or thin tissue paper. Behind it was another layer of tissue paper that was hand colored. When placed in the viewer and held up to the light, the stereo images combined into a surreal, lifelike full color scene. Here, Satan is a deep red. The chandeliers are lit up. The skeletons have glowing red eyes. The waters are a murky blue and the fires of hell seem to burn before the viewer. The glowing eye effect was actually an additional feature. Rather than just coloring the eyes red, a hole would be poked into the tissue paper and filled with red gel. When illuminated, all of the colors would show through, but the red gel would glow. And in a stereoscopic viewer, 
they would give the illusion of three dimensions. The Diableries were created for this 3D effect. They exaggerated the depths so that it would appear even more noticeable in the viewer. At times, they'd have objects protruding from the scenes so that it would look like it was coming right at you. Like the devil's fishing rod. So this reminds us of the 3D movies of the 1950s and 1980s. Let's take Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D, or Jaws 3 in 3D. Both movies featured literal harpoons coming right at you. Seeing it in the theater with red and blue 3D glasses on, audiences would duck away. In the case of both the Diableries and 3D movies, the effect was the selling point and the gimmick. Creators of both leaned into the gimmick, and it was perhaps the easiest part of its creation, but also what drew the most attention. The differences between Hanneter and Haber are plain when you're viewing the entire collection of 72. Hanneter's style was to carve out the scene from a block of clay. This resulted in a work where everything seemed to be connected. Everything grew out of and grew into everything else. He used minimal props, and if something was added to the piece, he incorporated it in such a way that it feels very much part of the whole, as if it was carved out along with everything else. So the one we're looking at right now is called Satan's Research Center, and it's by Hanneter, and you can really tell because it's it very much feels claustrophobic, like a like it is carved out of a block of clay. Yeah, I actually prefer Hanneter's style more, and the clouds are just phenomenal. The whole piece is just so well done; it's it's very beautiful. Well, the clouds are are kind of smushed out of the clay. They're not like a backdrop or little pieces of cotton. It, it seems it is actually clay be slightly mm -hmm. textured. The skeletons that are in here, they're obviously carved and placed inside, but the way he has them incorporated like into the ground, it does almost look like they're, they're sort of growing out of the clay. Do you know how big these pieces were? Yeah, they were probably about two feet high. There are some pictures of the sculptors holding some of the figures and, and they're pretty large. The sad thing, which we actually don't mention anywhere in this piece, is that none of these exist anymore. They're all gone. They were demolished. They probably, unfortunately, after they were photographed, I'm assuming. Yeah, after they're photographed, they were all all demolished. And it, it, it is a bummer. It looks like a lot of work. <laughs> it does. But they did crank these out. There were a lot of them. Haber took an almost opposite approach. While Hanetier carved away what he didn't want in order to create his scene, Haber added his carvings and props, creating a diorama. His sculptures weren't intended to appear as if they were carved from a single block of clay. He used numerous props, especially lights, but also plant matter, miniature bicycles, boats, wagons, and anything he could use to complete his scene. Now, the next one we're looking at is the, what is the course of the velocipedes? Yes. Infernal. The, the infernal velocipedes, right? Yes. The best word for a bicycle ever. Absolutely, it is. These, it's heavily props. And yes. it looks it looks almost nothing like Haneotaire's. There's no clay block here at all. No, no, it's, you could definitely tell that they are all props. Yeah, they're all little dolls, little skeleton dolls. The skeletons actually look really good. Oh God, I yeah. think what gives it away is the two women. They are a little too stiff. They are very doll-like. <laughs> also, I really like that one of the demons is gonna run over a skeleton and one of the skeletons is holding its tail. <laughs> holding the demon's tail, yeah, yeah. yeah and you great. can barely see it, but the guard with the little staff, it's a dog. 
It's a, oh my gosh, it is. That's funny. And behind everybody is a painted backdrop with like a little mountain and a little spire on top of the mountain. It's mm-hmm. it's very different from Hannah Tears. Mm-hmm. So in 1860, after only a couple of years working together, Lamiche registered 20 diableries. 18 were by Hannah Tear, and only two were by his old friend Hebert. It was probably around this time that Hannah Tear stopped working for Lamiche. He continued making diableries, but they were under the eye of another photographer with the amazing name of Hippolyte Collard. A year later, Lamiche found himself again in prison this time for retitling an actual photo of Napoleon III's review of the Imperial Guard as a review of the Infernal Guards. This ended up being the inspiration for one of the Diableries. And a few months later, he and his son-in-law went back to prison for making and selling pornographic photos. After he was released, he decided it might be a good idea to lay low. Around 1862, he handed off the business to his actual son. Uh, The son-in-law would be in and out of prison for years. Lamiche was, of course, still controlling things behind the scenes. Lamiche was forced back into a leadership role when both his son and son-in-law wound up in prison in 1864. All the while, they were still cranking out the Diableries, now mostly sculpted by Halbert. A year or so later, Lamiche sold the entire operation, including the old slides, to photographer Adolphe Bloch, who collected the 40-some Diableries and commissioned Halbert to create roughly 30 more. There were probably a couple of other sculptors in there, too. As Haber worked for Bloch, Hennetier worked for Collard. A sort of competition formed between the two sculptors. One would view the other's work and then make a snide parody of it. The other would see this and do the same. This little game lasted only a short time, and they eventually somehow agreed to disagree. Haber worked for Bloch until 1873, when all 72 Diableries, plus a few extras, were finished. Two years later, Bloch published all 72 as sets of 12. These could be purchased for 18 francs, which was more than a week's wages for your typical worker. This rendered the Diableries accessible only to the wealthy, which was somewhat ironic, since they were typically the targets of the satire. The initial publishing of the Diableries by Adolphe Bloch was not the end of the Diableries as a whole. Though it does seem that Haber dropped out at this point. All through the 1860s, Hennetier, the sculptor who created the first Diablerie, was sculpting for Jules Mariner, a photographer who would end up copywriting several series all sculpted by Hennetier. These works, though outside the main body of the official Diableries, show Hennetier's style drastically changing. Along with the competition between him and Hebert, it seems like Hanetier was also influenced by Hebert's style. Here, we see Hanetier using backdrops and adding a slew of props, just like Hebert. Uh, one that we're looking at here is the Observatory du Diable, with the Devil's Observatory. And it's still very clay. Like, there's a lot of clay here. But it's a lot of backdrops, a lovely moonscape, and it, it's the devil looking through a telescope to the moon. Yeah, with his left eye, which is kind of cool. <laughs> The devil is left-handed. Yep. There's a, a winding staircase. There's some some demons on the bottom. I like these demons. Sorry. There is a, I just needed to mention. There's a lot of demons. And you notice that the skeletons, at least on the bottom, have horns. Yes. This is definitely different. You can see some, some difference. But I got to go back to the demons again because these ones have boobies. <laughs> they they do sorry. indeed. They do indeed. <laughs> 
Uh, but it's it's a really wonderful piece, and I, I really enjoy this. And if you're looking at them, you would say this is how bears work, but it's not. It is henna tears. Another series produced by Marinere, and almost certainly made by henna tear, leans so far into the new style that it's questioned whether henna tear made them at all. It wasn't just the style that was changing, but also the subjects. With the political and body Limache out of the picture, Hennetier and Marinere turned to mythology for inspiration. Of course, Satan was still the main character, but there was hardly any sign of parody or satire. It was just straight depiction and interpretation of old stories or old lithographs. One, entitled An Infernal Night, based on an old lithograph, shows a Taurus being woken by a gaggle of demons causing chaos in and around and under the bed. One is about to slurp up the chamber pot, mm, and another appears to be farting in the Taurus' general direction. Diableries were created as stereo views well into the 1890s, while the rest of the world had moved on from stereo cards to CDVs and cabinet cards. France was still enamored by the 3D images. This final set was created in the late 1890s, though nobody knows who made or photographed them. By this time, the skeletons were just kind of doing random boring stuff. There wasn't really a moral they were relating or an event they were parodying. Some depicted hell, but most were just tame and kind of yawn-inducing. The Diableries are best viewed in the book Diableries by Paula Fleming, Dennis Pellerin, and Brian May, an astrophysicist who took up collecting stereo cards while playing guitar for some band named Queen? This book collects all known Diableries, 160-ish in all. The main series of 72 features a full-size image of each Diablerie, as well as a black and white and color stereo view. The others are smaller, but still viewable. The stereo views can be seen through the viewer that ships along with the book. May invented the viewer himself, and it's incredibly handy. While the color images can't pop like they did when seen through French tissue, it's close enough and and really breathtaking. The effect is pretty magical. France in the mid-1800s viewed Satan in much the same way that metal bands of the 80s viewed him, as an ironically hilarious character that was both silly and spooky. Almost nobody took him seriously unless they were themselves indoctrinated into that special segment of Christianity that inadvertently gave Satan his satanic powers. Originally, the Diableries were created to ridicule and mock the dictatorship of Napoleon III. Hanitaire and Habert, under the direction of La Miche, may have been their generation's Iron Maiden. But as they became more universal... Satan and his skeletons became mere characters showing up and getting themselves into all sorts of mischief. By the end of things, it wasn't even mildly shocking. Though not shocking either then or today, they are absolutely stunning to view, especially in 3D. Well, after that spooky little segment, we should probably lighten the mood a little bit. That was that oh, was I pretty guess. scary. <laughs> so, we love zines. We love zines so, so much. And Vanya, you have a zine for us to talk about today. I do. Lost Memory. And it's by Chris D'Amour. 
Chris actually sent this twice to me. I lost it. Oh, and yeah. I just wanted to mention really quick, if someone has sent me a zine and I haven't reviewed it yet, please message me. I'm kind of a shit show. <laughs> oh, yeah, Luckily, yeah. Chris has a, a couple left. I think he said about 15 when I talked to him. So uh, let's get into it. Yeah, go for uh, it. I got it and it is magazine size. And let me tell you, I'm not sure if you guys do this, but sometimes I open up a zine and I'm just like, yes, this is how I want to show my work. He just, Chris did something wonderful, like page after page, never monotonous or dull. Every page is a surprise, a very balanced look into his photography. I'm seeing his work radiate from each page. And just when I think, okay, there's no way the next page is going to top it, it does. I'm constantly pleasantly surprised. His color work feels like the place. It's not just a photo of something. It feels soft, warm, and lived in. His black and white work is sharp, rich in tones and light. He seems to know exactly what he's doing when it comes to capturing light. Lastly, he has some night shots that have a very David Lynch Lost Highway vibe. And I don't know if I just decided Lost Highway because it's called Lost Memory, but hey, there you go. He's capturing foggy, misty nights. I'm slightly jealous because he is somehow making it look easy, and I know it's not. Lastly, I want to mention the little things that he scanned in I thought was kind of like a little extra bonus. There's a Metro card, a note, and various goodies. And it's kind of a nice break in between sections or just pictures. It made it more personal. It just looks a lot of fun. You know, we live in this like digital world and Chris is somehow using film to show us what he sees. And I really spent some time looking at this one and I really enjoyed it. It was really nice to look through his lens. Uh, all through his lens. Oh, boy. Sorry. <laughs> you can find Lost Memory at christamore.com. They're $25, and it is huge. It's 96 pages, and like I said, magazine size. So go and get one. Well, thanks, Vanya. If you know of a zine that's being made or if you yourself had made a zine, give us a contact. We would like to buy it from you. We have a few zines coming in to review over the next couple of weeks, but we definitely want to know about yours if you're making one. So drop us a line and let us know. Author Lens is made possible by our generous and amazing Patreon subscribers. Through their small monthly donations, we are able to afford to keep the podcast running. Patreon helps us cover expenses for hosting, for audio equipment. It helps us buy books for research and zines to review. To our Patreon subscribers, thank you so much. We couldn't make this podcast without you. Now, since we've last met, we've got two new patrons. We have Doug H. and Frank K. So when you subscribe to us on Patreon, you get monthly bonus episodes, you get full-length interviews, and you get some random posts and some random photos and some extra nonsense, depending on the tier in which you subscribe. 
We got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head over to patreon.com slash authorlens for more info. Well, Vanya, that brings us to the uh, ending of another show, our 71st. It's so sad because I feel like all year I'm excited for the Halloween episode. <laughs> well, I, I, I think we'll be continuing the Halloween theme in a way the next episode. But until then, what do you have going on for the next week? I've been home alone with Marley and the dogs all week long. And as much as I love my house and my family, she's 15 and I am almost out of patience. I might either cry or go insane. So why not do both? I am going to try to like hit the road, at least get out like 150 miles out north, south, I don't know, somewhere. Okay. Uh, do a little bit of camping and do a little bit of reading and napping and maybe nothing, but I'll bring some cameras, of course. That's always a good idea. Maybe Alabama Hills. Yeehaw. And while that's happening, Eric, what do you have planned for next week? Well, I think the summer is finally over. We've had a very long summer in Seattle, and I think it's supposed to rain the next coming weekend, which Mm. means no camping. The temperatures are pretty low. I was hoping to get out for another overnight, but I I just don't think it's going to happen unless there is some sort of miracle or mystery that takes place. I will pray to Satan to see if that happens. Day trips are what's in store, and hopefully I'll be doing one this weekend, maybe, or next I've actually thought about taking the winter off from shooting. I used to do that, and I kind of enjoyed the time away from the camera. Uh, Now, I don't think I need to do it like I used to need to do it, but it could kind of be fun to get a little break. I have some book and some zine projects that I'd like to focus on, and I don't know, it might free up some time to make that happen. We'll see, though. I just don't know. And what's coming up on the next Dev Party? Well, if I can get out in time to do it, maybe, maybe, big maybe, pushing color film. We've gotten a few people messaging us about how to do it and how they do it and how ECN2 has even published times for it. So yeah, sorry about that. It it does. We'll get into that if we do this. Mind you, it is not something I have any desire to do at all. And I'm not even 100% convinced that it should be done. On another note, I really enjoyed doing the AMA on the last dev party, the Ask Me Anything, Ask Us Anything. I think we might continue it in some way, in some shape. I don't know how. I I like it too. I thought it was great. I mean, maybe I should read the questions and maybe it's not like the answering machine (laughs) and I should probably like read the questions beforehand. Yeah, maybe. Uh, But- I don't know. It, it was kind of fun just off the cuff. Just like, all right, let me answer this. <laughs> so, yeah, it was. I think so, too. We, we don't get a lot of listener mail. And I get that. Our format isn't as inviting as like Sunny 16. That, and they had an entire weekly show devoted to listener mail. That was backing mm-hmm. paper. And I co-hosted that a few times. And it was a bunch of fun. Nobody asked me to co-host podcasts now. I wonder why that is. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I like to focus less on like what we're developing and how and use it as a way to connect to listeners. We'll still be developing because it is Dev Party and we'll still talk about our photos and 
the futures would probably still show up, but I'd like to turn it into something more than what it is. I don't know what that is, and we'll see where we end up. But if you've got questions or need some sort of advice, whether it's life advice or developing advice, write us and we'll answer it on Dev Party. Until then, Vanya, is there anything these good folks need to know? Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram, by email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com, and we're at All Through a Lens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at Surf Martian on Instagram, and I don't know if Granary still exists, but Silver Waves of Grain on Granary. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers on Insta and Cons of Cart on Granary. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag AuthorLensPodcast to be featured. You can find our episodes on Spotify as well as Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and whatever else you can find podcasts, I guess. So subscribe and leave us a review. And thank you all so much for listening. See you next week at Dev Party. We love you. I'm Vanya. Yes? You uh, want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Well, let's go. There we go. Fire and brimstone. Okay. What are you going to dress up like for Halloween? I think I know what you should be. What should I be? You should be Beaker's, like, assistant. Wait, Beaker is the assistant. Does Beaker have an assistant? No, the 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 main the science guy. Professor Honeydew. His name is Professor Honeydew? His name is Professor Honeydew, yeah, and Beaker is the assistant. Oh, my God. Are you saying I should be Professor Honeydew? Yes. Would you be Beaker? Beep, beep, boop, beep. <laughs> Of course, I am Beaker. <laughs> okay. I, I do think that the relationship between Beaker and Professor Honeydew is the same relationship as R2-D2 and C-3PO. And Eric and Vanya at All Through a Lens. Also, I kind of see the resemblance in Beaker's nose and my eyes. <laughs> and I think I am a little taller than you. It works out. It just makes sense.